You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. What if we could generate the power of our sun here on Earth? Sounds like science fiction, but actually the application of complex maths and physics principles in understanding how we might generate fusion energy like that powering our sun have been well understood since the 1950s and was made a reality in the 1990s right here in the UK. In the heart of the Oxfordshire countryside resides Tokamak Energy, Founded in 2009 as a spin-off, the company has long and distinguished roots in the UK Atomic Energy Authority's early fusion research at Cullum. Today, they are leading the way in developing a truly commercial fusion energy supply, which has the potential of radically changing how we not only generate energy, but how we use it in the future. The Tokamak team is over 160 strong, and is both a global and multidisciplinary community of scientists, engineers, technologists and commercial experts. The IMEC-E recognised the value of the work Tokamak Energy were undertaking in 2015, when it became one of the first organisations to be supported by the institution's Stevenson Fund. In this month's episode, I speak to Tokamak Energy CEO Chris Kelsall and senior HTS Magnet Development Engineer Greg Brittles about why fusion is considered such a viable energy source, the impact it might have on the green energy agenda, and about some of the innovative breakthroughs being made as a result of the Tokamak's development. I began by asking Chris if he could explain what a Tokamak is. Chris and Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really pleased to have you on the show. Chris, if we might start with you with a fairly straightforward question, I suppose. What is a tokamak and where does the name come from? So thank you very much for the question. In short, a tokamak is a vacuum chamber that's surrounded by very powerful magnets, which are configured to confine a superheated torus or a ring-shaped plasma from touching its walls, which would otherwise melt. And this is designed to house and confine fusion reactions. And tokamaks represent that branch of fusion in which we aim to create net energy through magnetic confinement. The name originally comes from uh, an acronym used by Russian scientists to describe a toroidal or a a donut-shaped chamber, um, which uses magnetic coils to confine that plasma. And plasma is the fourth state of matter. It comprises actually 99% of the visible universe. And it takes the form of superheated gases as the most common form of matter in the universe, not solids, liquids, or gases that we observe on the Earth's surface. But it's the ideal state for enabling fusion reactions. And that's where in that plasma, electrons are ripped away from the atoms to form what's known as an ionized gas, perfect for fusion. 
That sounds incredible. I I didn't realise that it was uh, a word that came from Russia or from some of that early research that was uh, that was done. So that sounds really interesting. So, Greg, if I might come to you, if we could focus a, a little bit on the on the physics of fusion, as some of our listeners um, are not engineers, they're not scientists. So I'm guessing this is quite a tricky question. But in a nutshell, what is fusion, and how does it differ from fission? Well, I always think if if you can't explain it to your friends at the pub, you don't really understand it. So I'll start with uh, the pub explanation. (laughs) (laughs) So, So both fission and fusion are processes by which you can release energy from the core of the atom, which is what we call the nucleus. So that's why it's called nuclear energy. Whilst fission is the process that regular reactor nuclear reactors work on, Um, which involves taking very heavy atoms such as uranium and splitting those into smaller atoms to release their energy. Fusion, on the other hand, takes the very lightest of elements, so for example hydrogen, and fuses those together to form slightly heavier elements um, such as helium. So fusion is actually the process that powers the sun and it powers all of the stars in the universe. And what's going on there is that in the very hot and dense conditions in the center of the sun, uh, the, the ions, which are the effectively the cores of, of the atom, um, they're being forced together with tremendous force such that they bond together and form these, these helium nuclei and release these en- this, this energy to us. Whilst the sun has an incredible gravitational force on its side in order to create dense conditions that make this uh, reaction occur readily. We on Earth don't have the luxury of this incredible gravity behind us, and that's why we have to use exceptionally powerful electromagnets in order to generate the forces required to contain the plasma, and we then have to heat that plasma to temperatures that are about 10 times hotter than the center of the sun in order to make a viable reactor here on Earth. The reason that fusion represents such a holy grail for energy production is that it offers us with an extremely powerful and abundant energy source um, and it's produced by a method that is intrinsically safe and produces no long-lived radioactive waste or carbon emissions. The fact that we're actually trying to produce something that is hotter than the centre of our own sun, that seems like quite a challenge for engineers. I mean, that's something that, you know, when we're just not going to be able to do every day, is it really? It's, it's a bit out of the ordinary and it requires some very special technology. And that's, that's exactly the technology we're building here at Tokamak Energy. And some serious amount of physics and maths, uh, I, I suspect, goes into the back of that. Yes. Uh, now, Chris, coming back to you, let's talk briefly about the history of Tokamak Energy because this incredible work has its origins all the way back to the Second World War, really, doesn't it? The the UK has been a leading light in fusion uh, research over the last 70 years. Can you share some of the highlights uh, of that journey? Absolutely. So fusion research in the UK really kicked off uh, after the Second World War in the later 1940s and 50s down at Aldermaston in Berkshire, just west of, of Reading, and also at various universities such as Imperial College and Oxford University, and also at the newly formed Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell. And then in 1965, the UK Atomic uh, Energy Authority created the Cullum Laboratory just south of Oxford as a purpose-built home for Britain's fusion research program. And the Cullum Laboratory soon established a leading reputation for fusion science. And after testing over 30 different device concepts, 
decided and focused on the tokamak design from the early 1970s as its first choice in terms of seeking to achieve fusion. And following the 74-75 oil crisis, the EU Atomic Energy Agency, Euratom, began a multinational project to design a large tokamak. And Cullum was chosen to host the Joint European Taurus, now referred to as JET, in 1977, and they achieved first plasma in 1983. And by 1991, it became the first fusion device, a tokamak, to achieve controlled fusion and produce 16 megawatts of fusion plasma in 1997. And to this day, arguably, tokamaks are the only device to have achieved controlled fusion, despite all the other versions of fusion technology that are out there at the moment. Mm. And it was at that point after 1997 that Cullum elected to pivot from the conventional tokamak to a spherical or more circular compact design, um, which enhanced the prospects for smaller, lower-cost fusion. And to this day, Cullum remains part of the UK Atomic Agency's wide-ranging um, fusion energy program. And it was from there that Tokamak Energy was spun out in 2009 by the three co-founders of Tokamak Energy, Alan Sykes, Mikhail Grasnovich, and David Kingham. So we've got about a, a 13-year pedigree as a standalone entity. That's an amazing journey that, that the business has been on from right from those early days right through to, to the present day. I remember visiting Cullum actually way back in the early 90s on an IMEC visit. And I think you mentioned the organisation was working on the JET project at the time, which if I remember rightly, was about the size of a small house. I'm guessing that the design of the reactors has moved on significantly since then. So could you give us an idea of the kind of the size and construction of these fusion devices, these vessels that you're working on today, and, and some insight into how these devices operate? Sure. Well, I'll give you um, an overview on the on the size and the construction, and then perhaps Greg can share some insights on operation. Very briefly, our current ST40, which has been operational over the last uh, couple of years, has a major radius, and that's a distance between the centre of the centre column in the tokamak to the centre of the plasma. That distance is about 40 centimetres. But clearly there's a vacuum chamber, inner wall, outer wall, and then there's balance of plant and kit that sits around that. Um, so the equipment around that takes up a larger space, probably the size of a, of a, of a small apartment rather than a, a small house. Um, but our intermediate device that we're targeting for around 2026 will probably have a major radius of around 80 centimetres up to about a metre, while our commercial devices will probably extend this up to around a three-metre major radius. So these future specifications, as you'll appreciate, are subject to further operational analysis and review yeah. before we ultimately go into design freeze. But longer term, for our nth-of-a-kind device, I would imagine that once you add in all the, you know, the offices, the uh, support infrastructure uh, to run the tokamak, that you're probably looking at a, a building that's perhaps around 18 to 20 metres high um, and taking up the area once you include all the offices and support infrastructure, maybe of a football field. Um, it's very difficult to exactly specify that now because we've got a, a journey to go on to firm up the design, but that, that's our latest thinking. By comparison, I'd add that our ST40 is about a 30th of the volume of JET. So 
We have recently achieved a 100 million degree uh, plasma target at a cost of around 50 million pounds, which was achieved over a five-year period. So it's represented a very robust return on investment. Ultimately, our focus is on getting a commercial, smaller, compact device, which enables a lower cost path to commercial fusion and can be scaled and globally deployed in a manner that um, is very adaptable for future um, end customers. So let me come in there and, and tag on to the end with a, a brief description of exactly how a tokamak works. Um, so the operating principle of a tokamak can be described in a few sentences, but I'm sure you'll appreciate that the technology behind that is is vastly more complicated uh, and can't be summarized so, so briefly. Yeah. Um, so a tokamak is essentially a, a type of elaborate oven. So the way that the way that this works is that first of all you can imagine a chamber that's filmed that that is filled with two forms of hydrogen. These these are these are gases that are called deuterium and tritium. And these are heavier forms of hydrogen that simply make a better fuel than ordinary hydrogen for uh, for operating here on earth. So the, the first thing that happens is the gas is turned into a plasma. And what a plasma is is a gas by which the positive and the negative electric charges have become separated, uh, which turns it into effectively a charged gas that we can control. So the way that the plasma is created is conventionally done by ramping up magnets, and this applies electromagnetic forces that separate the positive and the negative electric charges that make up the atom. So the plasma can then be controlled by very powerful electromagnets, which stops the plasma from touching the walls and also keeps it in the right shape and position inside the chamber. Next, we need to heat the plasma up to the temperatures uh, at which fusion can occur. So this is done by several means, but essentially we inject the heat in the form of neutral beams of particles that can get inside this magnetic cage that we've created, um, but also in the form of electromagnetic waves operating similarly to a microwave oven. Um, all of this action speeds up the motion of the particles uh, in the plasma, it heats it up, raises the temperature, and in the end, the temperature range that we're aiming for is in excess of 100 million degrees, wow. which is in the realm of 10 times hotter than the center of the sun. So under these conditions, the deuterium and the tritium ions, so that's the nucleus of those atoms, begin to collide with one another. And they collide with such intensity that they're able to overcome their natural repulsion from one another and actually fuse together. In doing this fusion process, they release an energetic neutral particle, called a neutron, that is not confined by the magnetic field. And this is exactly what we want. So that neutron escapes from the magnetic field, it collides with the wall of the machine, which we call the blanket, and deposits its heat into those walls. Um, this heat is then the energy output from the plasma. We can then extract it either directly in, in the form of thermal energy, so just, just pure heat energy, which is useful for a huge amount of, uh, of energy needs, um, or it can be used to generate electricity in the traditional way by boiling water to produce steam, driving a turbine and generating electricity. That is an amazing description. It's, it, 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 as you rightly say, it's it's like a cooking pot, isn't it? It's it's mixing all of these elements together, make this great big sort of plasma soup, and then generating all this energy. I'm sorry to make it sound <laughs> a lot more simpler yeah, yeah. than than you just described, but but in my mind, I can. That's how I can envisage it. It's it's right. quite a an exercise to go through to get all of that material into into one place, isn't it? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. So uh, for me, the, the, the key technology that, that drives this is the magnets. And I'm going to bring it back to magnets because I'm a magnet engineer and people like to talk about what they do. Well, I was, I was <laughs> going to be my next question, actually, Greg, because your title is Senior HTS Magnet Development Engineer. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that involves and why magnets are so critical to the operation of the tokamak? Yeah, with with pleasure. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, so so indeed. So so here at TE, we're we're pioneering the development of a new type of electromagnet known as high temperature superconducting or HTS magnets. So the goal here is to generate the extremely powerful magnetic fields that we require, and they need to be run continuously. So your listeners might be familiar with the concept of electromagnets, which usually involves wrapping a copper wire around into loops, passing an electric current around that wire to generate a magnetic field within the core of the loops. Um, And this is how our ST40 operates um, at huge scale with huge bars of copper rather than wires. Um, And in the ST40, we're able to pass a few hundred thousand amps around the magnets for a second or so. So the trouble with copper, and in fact all metals, is that they heat up when you pass current through them. People are used to the the term of electrical resistance, and electrical resistance means that they generate heat when you pass a current through them. Um, And in the end, when you take magnets to to the extremes that we need them to go to, of very high magnetic fields, um, they actually consume huge quantities of power, and they heat up to such an extent that it wouldn't be viable to produce a full power um, producing tokamak with metal magnets. Right. Um, and this is why we turn our attention to special materials called superconductors to wind our magnets from. Now, superconductors are materials that can carry exceptionally high currents with absolutely zero electrical resistance, making the ideal magnet conductor. There is a catch, however. So the catch is that these magnets have to be cooled cryogenically to extremely low temperatures to work in this way. So typically, superconductors operate at around minus 269 degrees Celsius, or a few degrees above absolute zero, which is uh, the coldest you can go. However, in recent years, a new type of superconductor has emerged, um, and that type of superconductor is able to perform extremely well at high magnetic fields and so-called high temperatures, which is where it inherits its name. Um, in reality, this temperature is about minus 250 degrees Celsius, <laughs> a balmy figure, um, or about 20 degrees uh, above absolute zero. So this won't rank as high temperature for most people, but for us engineers, that's a world of difference. But the question now is, why is this breakthrough so important for fusion? Well, it's now well established that the power that you can generate from fusion scales dramatically with magnetic field strength. So if you can generate very powerful magnetic fields, then you can generate more power. Or if you have a certain power spec for your device, then you can make the device smaller. And by enabling these compact devices, um, we enable a commercial route to fusion. And that is, that is what, why Tokamak Energy exists. Um, specifically working within the Magnets team, what is our job? Our job is to develop this technology towards commercial fruition. So we need to solve the challenges of coil manufacturing, mechanical stress management, magnetic energy management, um, and so on. And we achieve this by building coils of increasing scale and complexity uh, towards meeting the final requirements of a fusion device. We've been very successful in doing this so far. Um, So we've built 
magnets now that have achieved world-first magnetic field strengths of 20 Tesla at the, at the 20 Kelvin operating point that they need to work out for fusion. And we've developed manufacturing methods that work on coils of meter scale. Um, so there's a lot of work to do, but we've got a very talented team here who are driven and are, are making great pace with, uh, with developing this technology. That sounds incredibly exciting, Greg, that so many different engineering disciplines going into to solving this problem just to get the, the equipment working itself. So it's not, you know, that's a separate, whole separate piece of, of engineering development, isn't it, to the actual tokamak energy generation in its, in its own right. Yeah, absolutely, and and in fact, we've been we've been running the magnet development program in parallel to the Tokamak program specifically for this reason, so that they can both run at full pace. Um, and as Chris will will uh, go into later, they they will come together in the next device uh, to produce a full HTS uh, Tokamak in in our next device. That sounds incredibly exciting. I, I look forward to hearing more about that development in in the future, and, and maybe Chris can elaborate on that as well. I'd like to bring you both to to a point, I, I guess, that is is a very big topic of conversation across all fields of engineering. There's, there's an awful lot of debate going on around clean energy right now, um, particularly given the, the climate crisis that we're in. Obviously, energy sources such as things like wind, wave and solar are, are getting an awful lot of attention, aren't they? Because they can provide energy for us today with technology that's readily available. So where does fusion energy sit in this green energy debate? And and how long do you think it will be before we see a truly commercial fusion system? Well, renewables, we believe, have a key role to play. And clearly, they're, they're, they're undertaking a significant amount of contribution as we speak today. But we all know that they are intermittent, they're weather dependent, and they're unsuited, unfortunately, to the provision of intense heat that's required for the hard-to-abate industrial sectors. Sure. So if you think of the iron and steel smelting, cement manufacturing, chemicals, petrochemicals, synthetic fuels, there's a whole range of sectors where intense heat's required that are often overlooked in the debate and the discussions. And if we forecast forward into the 2040s and 50s, the research that we're reading from various sources indicates that in excess of the 50% of total power demand in the 40s and 50s represents this sector. So we, if we're going to achieve our net zero targets and our net zero goals to address climate change, we have to find a baseload solution not only for electrification, and and uh, displacing fossil fuels, but also in relation to these carbon-intensive industrial sectors. Yeah. And that's where fusion comes in. So fusion can be that answer as a complement and a partner to other clean technologies in future diversified and resilient net zero grids. So it's not so much a question of either or, it's around finding the optimal combination in future uh, net zero grids across a whole range of different geographies and markets, both in the electrification, also within the industrial space, but also in supporting and driving future hydrogen grids that uh, are also going to play an important part. In terms of timing for achieving a truly commercial fusion supply, we're targeting our first-of-a-kind device in the mid-2030s and our nth-of-a-kind device, which implies 
uh, a uh, economies of scale implies techn- technical and cost advantages being developed in that uh, optimal device. And we're looking for a global rollout in the late 2030s and early 2040s. So we've got a very clear target. We've got a very clear plan. Um, it's clearly not a solution today, but it's a very important solution for our children and our children's children. It is the end game solution. It's the most natural, naturally occurring form of energy creation in the universe as Greg was pointing out earlier, I'm looking outside at the sun and that's all light from fusion reactions. We are confident that we can replicate that on Earth on that timeline. That's, it seems like a long way away, but Chris, that's a very short timescale really, isn't it, in, in terms of the, the amounts of energy that we need and how we're going to address uh, the climate crisis. So um, it's, it's going to put a lot of pressure on you as an organisation to, to really drive that technology forward. Indeed, but you know we're very confident that we've got a plan. We're also aware that we can't achieve all those aspects ourselves. A lot of this is around being very proactive and progressive in identifying and then uh, securing collaborations and partnerships with world-class counterparties, not only in the UK, but in a number of different countries, and being very forward-looking around where we see our strengths and where we see the strengths in others and being smart around piecing that all together for for a whole delivery platform. Absolutely. This is a global crisis that we face and and it needs global involvement from engineers and scientists and and governments from from across the globe as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, If I might take the chance to use your platform to inspire a few people, let me just tell you what a fascinating industry this is to work in and one that I, I hope that those undertaking um, GCSEs, A-levels uh, and degrees at this point should absolutely turn their attention to. The the, the interdisciplinary nature of, of Tokamaks just makes for the most exciting environment to work in as, as an engineer that um, you, you will never you will never go hungry for uh, interesting problems to solve and you'll never find a more important problem to solve either. So please turn your attention to fusion and uh, give give us your skills and turn them into something extremely positive for the world. I, I think you both hit on, on a very important point, which is something that's very close to the IMEC's heart, which is education and future development of engineers. And, and you know, we, we always sort of say that the technology that, um, that will be developed in 30, 40, 50 years' time we as engineers today can't even envisage what that will be like. And I think what you're talking about there is is just in reach. It's just in reach of these young people who are going to be the next scientists, the next engineers, uh, the next problem solvers who are going to creatively develop this kind of technology. It sounds a very exciting opportunity. And and I, as I said, I came to visit Cullum um, back in the 90s. Uh, it was very inspirational to me then as a young engineer. I hope that, uh, you know, in, in what you said um, it'll inspire a few other young people to come and take a look at, at fusion energy. I, I think that's that's a great way to lead on to my last question, Chris. You've been in the CEO seat now for, for a year uh, or about a year, haven't you? So how are you hoping to, to take the company forward in the next few years? And, and what ambitions for the business have you got over the coming decades? You've kind of, you know, um, sort of said a little bit about that, but 
Could you elaborate on that for us? Sure. And I think the first thing that I should say is having only been on board for 16 months, and that's only a short part of the journey of Tokamak Energy since 2009, the one thing that has struck me is the extraordinary advances that Greg and the wider teams, the plasma physicists, the engineers, all the technology development teams, the design teams, the progress that they have made in merely 12, 13 years is quite extraordinary. Um, And At Tokamak Energy, we are focusing on combining the spherical tokamak as a a cross-section. It's a bit more circular. It's not unlike a cord apple in a way. But as as Greg alluded to, we're looking to combine that spherical tokamak technology, which we believe is the optimal combination for efficiency, um, for low-cost delivery of fusion that's uh, stable and long-lasting. We're going to combine that with these high-temperature superconducting magnets to provide super strong plasma confinement and stability. We believe that this will be a very powerful combination for optimizing plasma density and the conditions for fusion reactions and ultimately for commercial delivery. And earlier this year, Tokamak Energy was the first spherical tokamak team ever to reach the 100 million degree plasma temperatures. And that's important because that's the threshold for fusion reactions. And we've generated trillions of neutrons, um, which will be the, the future energy source ultimately to be transferred into electrons and into heat for the industrial sector. We are also the first privately funded tokamak team ever to achieve this threshold. So we've got a very strong pedigree. We've got a track record of delivery. We're going to take that DNA and targeting in 2026, we will combine these two technologies in another world first. The STHTS device will be the first ever spherical tokamak with the high temperature superconducting magnets that have all those uh, characteristics and properties that Greg described described a few minutes ago, will demonstrate a broad range of operational targets for commercial fusion. It'll help us to optimise the design for our fusion pilot plant, which will be commissioned in the early 2030s, and that will demonstrate capability of delivering electricity into the grid. And by the mid to late 2030s, our aim is to be commencing the deployment of our 500 megawatt fusion power plants with our partners to ultimately deliver electricity to the grid and industrial heat to those hard to decarbonize heavy industries, as I said, such as iron and steel smelting, chemicals, petrochemicals, and providing abundant energy to support um, electrolysis for generating abundant green hydrogen for the hydrogen grid. And I'd like to draw as a closing remark on a quote from the late Professor Stephen Hawking, that brilliant cosmologist uh, that uh, was asked once what the world, what one world-changing idea would he like to see implemented by humanity? And I was expecting he might say, oh, you know, space travel to X or Y or <laughs> discovering the, uh, you know, the, the source DNA of stars. But he said, actually, this is easy. I would like to see the development of fusion power to give an unlimited supply of clean energy, a practical power source which would provide us with an inexhaustible supply of energy without pollution or global warming. And that was from Professor Stephen Hawking, an individual with, I think you'll agree, extraordinary foresight and uh, 
lateral and multidimensional understanding of the universe. So that's coming from him. And in conclusion, our technology is clean, it's low cost, it's safe, secure, weather independent, and it's sourced from abundant fuel supplies. And we see that fusion has a critical role to play as a partner and complement to intermittent renewables in future diversified net zero energy grids for our children, their children, and thereafter. Well, Chris, I think that's a wonderful um, way to kind of finish. I mean, you've got a lot, a lot to live up to 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 meet Stephen Hawkins's um, ideal, but but I think it sounds like you're well on the way to achieving that. And I think had he still been with us today, he would, um, you know, be very proud of your achievements, not just to to date, which I'm sure he was very well aware of, but what you're going to achieve in the future. It, it's an incredible piece of technology that you're developing. I'm really looking forward not only to see the technology develop, but also to see what a difference it's going to make to, you know, improving the world through engineering, as we say at the IMACI. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Helen. It's been certainly a great pleasure to talk to you today. Likewise. Thank you, Helen. That's all for this month. In next month's episode, we will be talking about the inherent dangers of creating new technologies and the decisions engineers have to make every day to protect society as they strive to improve the world around us. We will be discussing the legal obligations engineers must adhere to to reduce risks, commonly known as ALARP, and we will be exploring the concepts of ethics in engineering as greater emphasis is placed on engineers to maintain a respect for life, law, the environment and the public good. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us, podcast at imeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.